All right. Good morning, everybody. What a great weekend. We got a lot of things um, <coughs> to do this morning. Uh, one is we're not going to do updates or anything on the capital campaign. So if you have any questions about that, go to the website. Um, if you've not been here in a while, but you're part of our church and you want to get more information, you can reach out or again, go to the website, click on the link. You get a lot of information there. Also, um, next week, Easter uh, next week represents 175 years that First Baptist Church of Tyler has been a church. And so, and that's who planted us. First Baptist Church planted us. And so um, I sent out uh, an encouragement to all of the about a dozen churches in Tyler or in East Texas that have been planted by First Baptist Church in that 175 years um, to, um, to create a happy birthday video. So we're going to do ours real quick, okay? So I'm going to, everybody stand, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to the camera for one, just like one second, and then I'm going to turn it, and everybody just shout happy birthday when I point, right? Ready? Now, I'm one, I'm old, so I'm like, you know how hard selfies are for old people, right? So that's one. Two, I've got to hide the chin, so let's get it up about <laughs> there, looks about right. Okay, y'all ready? All right. Hello, First Baptist. We are so grateful that you planted us down here at South Spring. And uh, man, congratulations on so much ministry over so many years. And the only other thing it seems appropriate to say is... Happy birthday! All right, good job. You can have a seat. That should be awesome. Um, uh, that's... What a great thing. All right, so um, I also need to, a couple of things I want us to reference this morning. I want you to pray with me about a few things. Um, and I know that, that in the church, you, there are probably hundreds of very significant prayer needs out there. Family, friends, neighbors, businesses, schools, all of it. I know that that's out there for all of us. I've got a handful that I, I want us to pray for together and th let these represent God's blessings into all of these. Obviously, four First Baptists is one great one. Um, two of our own, uh, Larry Adkins and uh, Jack Compton, are both in the hospital and really um, struggling, and we need um, uh, God to act um, as only God can in those situations. And of course, for little Christopher Lim, who we've been praying for together, he got to go outside for the first time this week in his life, um, which required like a whole entourage, but it was, it was sweet and cute, but man, like, and heartbreaking. Um, also, many of you may know Doug Anderson, uh, the pastor of Rose Heights, who passed away yesterday, and, uh, and so we want to be praying for, our, for them, for that church, um, a, a great church here in Tyler as well. And we have several people who are engaged in disaster relief stuff um, right now, this weekend, for the different storms that we just had, and for um, brothers and sisters who are dealing with and reeling from that damage. So if you will, join with me and let's pray, and then we'll jump into the passage. Um, Father, I, you are a father who loves to give good gifts. You give good gifts, even to the point of giving your son and your spirit to us. And so, Lord, we're so grateful that you, um, you are the type of God who loves to create and who loves to give good gifts and who loves us in ways that are beyond our comprehension. God, I pray that you would speak into these situations, act into these situations. Um, at our request, we can come to you with our uh, gift list, and this is our gift list. And we know you're God, and we trust you with this list. You know what's best, when it's best, why it's best, and how it's best. And so, Lord, it's hard for us to trust you with this, but we do. 
We trust you and ask for your um, healing hand on Larry and on Jack in particular, that you would bring them back to us healthy and well. Um, Lord, we ask for little Christopher. Um, Our prayer, Lord, is that you would give him a heart, um, grow his, heal his, or find one for him, whatever it is, Lord. Um, We can't wait to celebrate his coming home to us here, Lord. Um, We pray for Rose Heights, our brothers and sisters there, um, and for Doug's family, and we just pray, um, we, we pray that your special level of comfort would be poured out on them. Uh, And finally, Lord, for those who have faced um, difficulty and tragedy in the last few days and weeks in some of these storms, and for those who are seeking to serve them in your name, I pray for your grace and uh, and for your endurance, Lord. Thank you um, that First Baptist planted us. Thank you for the legacy. I'm closing in on two centuries uh, of your word uh, being spread in the East Texas area. We're so grateful. We pray your blessings on them and all of us as well. Your son's name, Amen. Okay, so we're staying with 1 Samuel, even though it's Easter season. Um, one, just because I figured those people only come at Easter, they need a change up periodically. Like they need some, some variation, um, some new material. No, I'm just kidding. It's just because the themes of kingship and being chosen are so powerful in, in these passages and so powerful in the Easter account. Um, and so we want to be engaging with that this week and next week and watch as God chooses people who are not worthy of being chosen. This is the gospel, the idea that God would choose those who have not earned it, who cannot earn it, who are not that impressive because that's us. Um, So Samuel, if you'll remember in the story, um, Samuel has brought Saul up to a high point on a hilltop in this town um, where there's apparently a sacrifice going on. And if you'll remember from back earlier in 1 Samuel, um, a sacrifice, really most sacrifices are really just kind of like having a meal with God, getting lunch with God or a picnic with God that the people would bring the, all the supplies and the goods and they would sacrifice the animal and parts of the animal would be boiled off or cooked off and as an aroma to God, like his share in the meal and then everyone would sit down and eat together and that was the picture. That's why it was so offensive for Eli's sons to come in and disrupt that is because be like somebody just breaking into the middle of a family meal and that's that's just not done like that. And so that's what's going on. So here's what's happened is Samuel suddenly has invited Saul to come be a part of this sacrificial meal, this experience. And so he said, hey, I want to get you guys, I want to get you to come up here with me. Now this has got to be pretty surreal. We're going to unpack that a bunch. Um, but Saul has arrived here looking for his dad's donkeys, asking for Samuel's input on finding the donkeys. And Samuel has said, why don't you stay for a meal? Why don't you stay for the sacrifice? So here we go. Um, verse 22 of chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Clearly, everything about this passage here is about the honoring of Saul. And again, I want you to imagine how strange this must all seem to the poor man who is looking for his dad's donkeys, and the next thing he knows, he's sitting at the right hand of the most powerful and influential person in all of Israel, um, and, and who, by the way, who he didn't know who he was. And now he's sitting by him at this sacrificial meal and eating the part of the meal that is set aside for the priest and the priest 
only. And now all of a sudden, Samuel is feeding Saul of that food. That's a big deal. In the King James Version, those of you who love King James, you got to love, the King James describes the seat that Saul is seated in as the chiefest place. That's pretty good. It is the chiefest place to sit, right there. It is meant to be an honor. Consider the implications, by the way, of Saul hearing. So here Saul is being dragged along again by circumstances that he has no control or understanding of. He's now sitting next to Samuel. Samuel says, here's the food, here's the seat that I had. That, you, know, you know your appointment book, Saul, where it said, lunch with Samuel, which by Saul has, of course, no such appointment. No such appointment book. And by the way, um, go ahead and get the food that I set aside for Saul. Um, go ahead and grab that and sit, because this is the guy I had it set aside for. And Saul's going, I'm just looking for dad's donkeys. Like, I, I, I have no idea what's going on around me. The implications of the fact that God has created this very particular, very specific series of events. Verse 25. When they came down from the high place of the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof. And he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. So he sleeps on Samuel's roof. This, again, is a seat of honor. Um, the roof was the best place to sleep in Israel, probably still is most of the year. Um, it's, it's most likely to be cool, comfortable, to have a nice breeze, um, all that kind of stuff. And so to have them uh, up there, sleeping up there, more honor for Saul, who again seems to be totally swept up in all of this. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servants to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. Okay, so Samuel wants a private moment with Saul. How private? Even the servant who's been involved in every step along the way. Now, I'm not taking God out of the story, but if you did, this, none of this happens without the servant. The servant has, has been an, a, a vital part of getting Saul into every part of this, of getting him to Samuel, of getting him to know Samuel, of, of all this stuff happening is very dependent on the servant, but even that servant, Samuel wants, like, nope, this is just for me and Saul and God. That's what this moment is. And we're going to, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at this. This is significant because as we break into the next little section of Samuel, timelines are going to get really tough. What happens before what is really tough? What, what order things happen in? The Samuel is not always written and organized in a way that makes sense to our Western mind. So we're going to wrestle through some of this. But knowing this is the first of Saul's kind of crownings. This is the first of the times that Saul is going to be made king, or in this case, at least prince. Uh, it's, we're going to run into this that, uh, as, as uh, Alistair Begg, the pastor, points out, it really feels like Samuel just cannot make himself say king when it comes to Saul. He keeps doing this where it's like, and now I'm going to anoint you as prince. And it's just like, like this happens over and over again. It seems how it feels. Okay, so here we are. This is a big deal. Is, as a good Jewish audience, this next little section should be shocking, maybe even offensive. Like something big has happened. You might say something, God is doing something so big it's going to make everyone's two ears itchy, which is exactly what God told Samuel was coming back in, earlier in 1 Samuel. Then Samuel took a flask of oil 
and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hands of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his people. This is a massive change. Up until now, only a few sacred spaces, a few sacred implements, and priests are anointed. That's it. It's essentially a worship of God experience. This is where God and man touch is at the anointment. This is where the presence of the Holy Spirit, and now a human being is being anointed, possibly for the first time ever in the Hebrew history for something other than priest. It's a big deal. Now, according to some of the research I did, it sounds like some pagan kings, what they had done throughout history was some pagan kingdoms, is they would kill an animal and boil its fat down to the oil. And so a lion or a leopard or a bull, an ox, they would, they would kill the animal and boil its, its, its um, fat down to the oil and then cover their new king in that oil. Meant to imply we're now putting on him the strength of an ox, the fierceness of a lion. And so it may be that pagans had been doing this for a while, although it's kind of hard to tell. But in this situation, this is very, very different. Um, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and have Jordan, I think I saw you over there. Jordan, come on up. Um, so it, with um, Jordan is one of our new leadership board members, um, and he's not quite being the total guinea pig because uh, Alan Pig got to do this in the first uh, service. He was, the, he was the true guinea pig. I literally had never done this before, but I've always wanted to. So here's the deal. Today we're going to celebrate, today as we celebrate Palm Sunday. It's the day when Jesus entered on the back of a donkey into um, Jerusalem. And, but think about, so they, they were throwing out the palm leaves and, and waving the palm leaves and their, and their cloaks, and they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But how were they referring to Jesus? They were saying that he is the son of David, not Saul. He's the son of David. There's an anointing or something very special about what, when we get to this whole process with David that is really intriguing. I want to unpack it, but first I want us to actually see what this looks like. So, um, so we'll see if we can do this as well this time as we did last time. All right, so they would not have covered him with towels. This would have been like you would have wanted this stuff dripping all down your cloak and everything, but uh, we're not, we're not 3,000 years ago. So, all right, so, um, so what we usually nowadays, when we anoint somebody, and we do, by the way, the, the, the book of the letter of James tells us to anoint people who are sick and have to confess their sins, and we do that as a church. Um, I often will anoint people who are um, being licensed for ministry and that kind of stuff. The idea, though, what I typically do is I will just take a little bit of, of olive oil on my finger like that and in, in the prayer process and then just do like a line or a dot or a cross or something like that. That's not what they did. What they did was take a flask. Now, I also want to imagine he had, must have had to kneel down a little bit because remember how tall Saul is, right? Okay, so just maybe bow your head a little bit. And then he would have taken this and would have poured it all <laughs> over his head. And then, thank you, and then he gave him a kiss. There you go. 
You might want to, you're going to want to keep that towel at least, I suspect. Good. Yes. <laughs> Does it weird, feel weird? It's a little cool. A little cool. Okay, nice. Listen, this is a neat, it's a neat experiment to get to see this done and get to imagine. So imagine when they did this with Aaron the first time, by the way, the oil, so much oil, it dripped down his beard. So you can imagine um, the, the fragrance, the olive oil plus mixed probably with all the different things. I put a couple little uh, scented oils from, uh, from Ginger's vast collection of scented oils into, uh, into that as well. Um, I, when I first mentioned I was going to do it, she was like, you can't use my frankincense, right? Because that much frankincense would probably be, you know, a small fortune, a couple thousand dollars worth of frankincense. It's, um, uh, I know, and Nard, remember, this is a, so part of what I want you to see that is to begin to unwrap all the places you see anointing happening in the Bible. To see that the idea of this oil, right, which is right now, as Jordan runs, the, is running down. I was amazed when I did, when I did the first service that it didn't pour off. It, it soaked in. Like it, it begins to immediately become part of the person, which is really kind of cool, the way it's meant to do, the way that's supposed to be. Not a few drops, a bunch of it being poured out. Here's, here's, in order to put these pieces together for you, understand that the Hebrew word for anointing is Mashiach, which is where we get the word Messiah. It is, it is the, the Greek word is Chrisminos, or we get the word Christ. What makes Jesus special is that he is the anointed one. He's the anointed one. That's his, Christ isn't his last name. His, Christ is his title. Jesus of Nazareth, the anointed one. And, and this is a special, it's a special anointed one. Think about all the ways Jesus was anointed. Anointed with the Spirit coming on him like a dove um, out of the sky. Jesus anointed in the baptism process. Anointed with the name that God gives him. This is significant. And think about us and our concept of anointing. We just sang about it. We are anointed in the blood of Christ. We are anointed with the blood of the anointed one. With the water of the anointed one. That's, that's what it is. Baptism represents several things. Obviously an identification, a death and burial, and resurrection. This is why in the earliest church writings they said that when you get baptized, the first choice is to be immersed in running water, the living water, water that rushes past you. That that was first choice. If you couldn't do that, still water was appropriate. You could be baptized in water that wasn't moving. Um, if, when and if God ever leads us to build a new great room, uh, a new big building or whatever someday, we will have running water for our baptismal. Um, that's, that would be the first choice. If you don't have the water to be able to immerse somebody, then the early church in the um, Didache said, well, then you pour water. And pouring water is meant to... So they acknowledge there can be situations in which baptism, which is clearly a representation, otherwise you wouldn't have different options of how to do it, is meant to communicate this. One of them is the death, burial, and resurrection. Another one is the anointing of the blood is one of the pictures it's meant to share. We're anointed like him. We are anointed by his blood. We are washed by it. The imagery of his blood, which signifies his death, his sacrifice, is what brings us into the royal family of God as priests and kings and queens. Then, of course, you have in Acts chapter 2, then you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Then you have the Spirit anointing, sealing that person. This is who you are. 
You're being defined by this. This is a new identity. The reality of the meaning for this for Saul, you've now been anointed, by the way, but strictly in private. Just Samuel and God and Saul know what's happened. Now, Saul's going to get a lot of questions about this because he's got oil probably running down his face and running down the back of his neck and and dripping onto his clothes as he leaves this, this conversation. He is certainly pondering. Can't you imagine Saul as he leaves? In a moment, we're going to talk about what his, what's going on in his mind as he leaves. Like, what? What just happened? Because by the way, it's not going to be fully unpacked for him. The reality of this meeting is a big deal. God sees. And by the way, God's going to give him three signs. By the way, later he's going to give him three tests. But let's look at the three signs, because that's what's in this chapter. Chapter 10, verse 2. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkey. He is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Sign one, people are going to stop you and have this conversation with you. Now, this is intriguing, by the way, because he's not home yet. He's only partway home. He's at Rachel's tomb. And, and how would someone do this? Now, I don't know what's going on here exactly. Is this just a confirmation? Um, like now the third person to say, hey, your dad's more worried about you than the donkeys now. Go home. They've been found. Um, I don't know what this is. As a man, obviously, I am hypersensitive to criticism. And so I, I can read criticism into this. Like I'm being told to do what I'm already doing. And we all love that right? When someone tells us to do something we're already doing. And so, hey, go home. Your dad is worried about you. I know. I know. The whole he's worried about me than the dog. Anyway, I don't, I don't know if that's going on with him. Um, or is this comfort to him? Like, like, okay, good. I'm on the right path. I'm doing the right thing. These must be friends of dad's. How else would they know about this? They've got to be from his hometown. And you got to imagine they're having this conversation with him as he's got oil running down his face going, um, hey, you need to head on home, right? Two men by Rachel's tomb near Bethlehem. That's where Rachel's tomb is. Verse 3, Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. We could, we could spend a whole sermon talking about the oaks um, in the Bible, specifically these. Um, these, are, these are all significant places where he runs into these people. Sign number two seems to be a provision. Three men going to Bethel, three goats, three loaves, and wine. Every commentator agrees this probably indicates they're going up to do a sacrifice at Bethel, um, where there is an altar there that has been there for a long, long time, since the time of Jacob. Um, and they're going to give them two loaves. So this is a part of the prophecy about this moment. You're going to give you two loaves. By the way, don't picture Mrs. Baird's bread. It's not a loaf. It's, it's more like a, 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 um, like a piece of bread or a, maybe a cake, something like that. You picture a cake of bread. Um, but, but we're going to get, and remember, we've read already that he was out. They were out of bread. Remember that? That, that Saul had, Saul's servant, had, Saul had said, we're already out of bread. So this is a provision for them. It is intriguing. They don't share any of the wine um, or any of the goats, you know, kind of a bummer, but um, probably that's because those were put to be sacrificed. Verse 5, and that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim. By the way, this is back home. So he's made a full circle coming back home where there is a garrison of Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. 
Okay, so this is back home, which is intriguing. I think we've got the map that shows the path. So you can see the red lines, um, which start down in Gibeah, and the, the solid line is his path looking before he meets Samuel. Then the dotted line is after he meets Samuel. So you see he makes a big circle, it seems, and on his way back, he takes a different route, and he gets stopped but near each of these places. He finally gets all the way back home to his hometown. <coughs> Samuel, it's intriguing, I'm going to reference this, but Samuel references there's a garrison of Philistines there. Well, certainly Saul knows there's a garrison of Philistines in his hometown. Like this is this cannot be news to him. So some people have a guess at why that's there. We'll talk about it. But so Saul's looking for this. Sign number three is a change. And this I love. Here you have a man who is relatively quiet. We've only heard him speak like four or five times total. And he typically not too brilliant what he says. Quiet, passive, plodding, uncertain, ignorant, confused, clueless. We don't, this is not someone who we, we've seen. Someone's always leading Saul. We, we've seen no evidence of Saul as a musician, as a praiser of God, as anyone who is involved much in a way spiritually at all, much less leading people spiritually. And now Saul is going to be making public and musical proclamations for the Lord in his hometown. Right? Verse 7. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Some commentators think that this, the implication here is, when these signs happen and you get back home, do what your hand finds to do to the garrison of Philistines, because God is with you. That may be very well the implication, is that God is saying, that Samuel is saying from God, okay, you've now been anointed the chieftain, the war chief of Israel, so go back home, kind of like Gideon tearing down his father's idols first. Go home and take care of business in your hometown. If that is what is meant, Saul does not do it. Um, Saul does not respond to it, if that's what meant. Verse 8. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you will do. So that's the final step. Go to Gilgal and wait seven days. Now, we're not going to see that happen for several chapters. It is really impossible for us to know. I mean, it may be a year or more before Saul actually does that. Why? We don't know. Is that, did Saul correctly understand that that's what Samuel meant? Or was Saul stalling and disobeying for a year or more before doing what Samuel told him to do? You can judge for yourself. Go ahead and keep reading. But you're not going to see this happen until like 1 Samuel 13 before you actually see Saul obey in doing this. And then we're going to see him disobey in the way he does it. We'll get there. So which would be toughest of these signs for you? If God anointed you to be a leader in some way and then sent you off and said, I've got four signs for you, would it be the getting news, um, good news, bad news, the simple interaction with somebody, maybe even a little bit of criticism? Is that what would, you, would make you stumble? Maybe accepting charity? That struck me as really hard for some people to accept charity. Hey, you look hungry. Here, I'm going to give you some bread. Like, that's, maybe that's a little more intrusive. We don't like when people do that. A public religious expression? Is that tough? Is it tough to fear looking silly in the worship of God? 
Um, I used to love when I would teach conferences, uh, like father-child conferences at Pine Cove and at other camps. And there was always, you know, you'd have the, the, the counselors running around acting like airplanes or whatever, singing songs and praising God and all these things. And there was always, always one or two dads. There'd be some dads running around with the kids doing all the crazy stuff. And there was always one or two dads standing in the back, their hands in their pockets, not singing. Maybe they were lost, in which case, totally appropriate. But as Christ's followers, maybe they just thought they were too cool, too manly, too tough, too something to look silly for the cause of Christ. I will tell you what's heartbreaking was watching sometimes their seven, eight, nine-year-old son standing next to them with his hands in his pockets and longingly watching all the other kids running around singing and playing and praising and just standing there because he's, more, he's trying to be loyal to dad and the way dad is modeling this. Man, if that's you, if, if you would say, I, can't, I have a very difficult time um, with how people might think of me if they saw me praising God or, or expressing my devotion to God, um, this is a challenge to you. This whole passage is... And we don't get the detail on the others, but we get the detail on that one. So here we go. Verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. Wow. Again, the phrase, another heart. In other words, making him a new person is beginning already. He's going to become a different man. And I think we all know this right here is the most powerful testimony possible especially to those who are nearest to us. This is a guy who seems like the world is changing around him at breathtaking speed. All of this has happened, and all I can imagine Saul thinking in his head is, I'm just looking for dad's donkeys. This keeps going, like, what is going on? He's, he is reeling. He's now walking home with this oil drenched down his head. Random strangers are stopping and talking to him, and he knows what they're going to say before they say it because it's exactly what Samuel said they were going to say. They're offering him things that he knows, like, he's got to be thinking, like, what? What is going on here? What is this? This is, this is crazy. And, and, and by the way, you're going to see this lived out a little bit differently next time we see it with David, but... It's still great to see this happening with Saul. Um, a, a speaker and an author who I like, and a lady named Patsy Claremont, wrote a book called God, God Uses Cracked Pots um, uh, several decades ago. Great book. And in it, she references the power of when we change because of Christ. Even simple things, not even necessarily moral things, just we're someone who never stops talking. I mean, we just love to hear the sound of our own voice. And then there's a situation in which we get still and we get quiet and we wait and see what other people have to say and people are going to be impacted by that. Wait, that's a testimony. We're always looking to tell our story as quickly as possible when the other person takes a breath and then we stop and we're still and quiet and listening. It's a testimony. The opposite is true. If you're the kind of person who people have known you years and they don't know what your voice sounds like, and then, and then something comes up, and it's time to speak, and you share. People know, wow, that's, that's outside of the, this person's normal character, normal personality. Something is at work in them. God is doing something in them. When we act outside of the ordinary, and God is growing us and changing us. When God changes us, it shows. When the intemperate or angry person learns to be gentle, it is a testimony when the impatient person becomes graceful, it is a testimony. When the liar begins to live in honesty, it is a powerful testimony. 
Every time one of us who has the fear of missing out says no, it is a powerful testimony. When the fearful person learns courage or confidence, when the sharp-tongued person learns empathy, I will tell you as a counselor, one of the main reasons that I've heard people walk away from their faith was because their parents' faith did not change them. They were still the same prideful, arrogant, unkind, angry people when they knew Christ and when they didn't. And decades of them going to conferences and retreats and church services and becoming deacons and leadership board members and pastors did not change them. And that, too, is a testimony. It is a testimony to a dead God and a dead religion. And it's vital that we are asking God, begging for God to grow us up in Him. If for no other reason, I mean, the freedom we get in that is amazing, but so that, so that others around us can see that we are different and that there is really a God. Verse 10. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, just like Samuel said. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? See, this is what I mean. All the people are, this is his hometown. He comes home, and this is Saul. We all know Saul, slow, plodding, quiet, doesn't get involved, passive, keep me out of it. Like, that's, that's Saul. And now, all of a sudden, he's running around with a tambourine, praising God? Like, what has happened to Saul? This, this is what they're, and by the way, we don't, we don't know exactly what is meant by prophecy in this era, um, that he's prophesying. Um, it, just, it probably just means he is proclaiming the truth of who God is. And it sounds like he's doing it musically, which is great. It should remind us a lot of Miriam uh, the, at the destruction of the army of Egypt. So look at this real quick. Exodus 15, 20, and 21. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Some people actually say that that little song is the oldest Hebrew we have in the Bible. Ancient, this this song that people have been singing for thousands and thousands of years. But Miriam, the prophetess, proclaiming what God has done with her tambourines as well. And so copying that, Saul is never noted anywhere as being anything like this, and yet we see him playing an instrument maybe, proclaiming God as powerful. In fact, a man in the place answered, and who is their father? Either asking about the other prophets, like, well, who who is their dad? Who? I don't know what's going on with Saul, but... Who are the parents of all these others? Or it may just be more like this. Where's his father? Like, which, someone, needs to, someone needs to put a stop to this. Or does, does Kish know this craziness is going on? Does he know his son is acting up like this? We really can't know for sure, but it turns into, look at, listen, therefore became a prophet. Is Saul among the, a, a proverb, is Saul among the prophets? When he'd finished prophesying, he came to the high place. This became like a, a saying, an idiom. So when people would say ridiculous things, they would claim some ridiculous thing. Oh, I won the lottery this weekend. You did, huh? And it's Saul among the prophets. It means like, I'm sure that's the truth, right? Uh, we saw it on April, on April 1st, all the social media stuff yesterday, all the April Fool's social media postings. My favorite was the, the toddler 
uh, parachuting organization or whatever, like the go skydiving with your toddler. It was, it was well done. But that, that, so you see that and you, go, um, and you go, oh, right, like Saul's among the prophets. It's, it's that kind of a picture. It's so unlikely a thing to happen. Um, apparently that seems to be the case. So it was not only surprising that Saul would be so demonstrative, but that it was especially odd for a son of Kish. Now, one commentary says, it's, he, he thinks it was meant to be saying, it's strange that someone as backwards and unrefined as the Kish family is acting so appropriate praise way, in, in a way of praising. I think it's the opposite. Now, maybe I'm imposing my own life on this, but, um, and we're going to see this, but I, I grew up I'm not even in Nacogdoches, outside of Nacogdoches. Um, not, I didn't grow up even in Appleby. I grew up outside of Appleby, Texas. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm a little bit uncouth um, when it comes to stuff like that. Definitely there were several times during our marriage, my wife who comes from a more upstanding family, um, sorry, that was nothing about my family, from, a, uh, from Fort Worth where they had like a little more, a little more couth, I guess is right. So a couple of those times like when you're newly married guys and you get your knees squeezed, you're like, oh, I just did a Nacogdoches thing that I wasn't supposed to be doing, right? That's a, that kind of thing. Um, my parents didn't let me anywhere near the China, for example, probably most of the time. Um, and so I had to learn some, like how to handle that kind of stuff because I just, you know, don't, don't put that kind of thing in a redneck's hand. So, so this is a, the commentary, I think it's the opposite. I think it is that, is that Kish and his family are wealthy and they're very refined and singing and dancing is not something that wealthy and refined people do, especially not in public. We don't praise God like that. Yeah, we put our name on the fellowship hall, but you don't see us singing and being silly and playing dodgeball with the middle schoolers in that fellowship hall, right? There's a proper thing for this. But I think that's what's going on. I suspect, <clears throat> and part of why I suspect this, is because it will be Saul's own daughter, McCall, who is going to criticize her husband, King David, for singing and dancing and making a fool out of himself in the way he praises God. David seems to feel no shame, by the way, from her rebuke. You can imagine she grew up around King Saul, who taught her the way a king is supposed to behave, dignified and self-honoring, and David doesn't seem to see that. Second Kings, Second uh, Samuel, sorry, we'll get there eventually. Second Samuel 6, 21 and 22. So when she criticizes him, here's David's response. It's a little harsh. I think David could have toned this down as a marriage therapist. I'm just saying... <laughs> a little bit here. But David says to McCall, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and all of his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people, uh, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible, more undignified than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. And I don't care. I have a higher calling than making you happy. In many ways, I will confess, by the way, the image of young Saul overcome with the joy of the Lord, making a fool out of himself in his own hometown, singing and dancing and playing instruments and praising God and probably doing it badly. Then later, that same person growing still and heartless and cold and no longer praising God like this, but as paying somebody else to do it for him, of all the things to lose, this breaks my heart the most. Of young Saul becoming older Saul, who has lost his childlike love to praise God without fear of the disapproval of fellow persons. May we never lose that. It's part of why we don't have a, some kind of standard except for don't disrupt everybody else. 
But if you want to raise your hand or stand up when we sing, if you want to fall on your face, if you want to sit there and weep in stunned silence, however the Spirit speaks to you in the midst of when we sing and praise, you're invited to do that. This is a, we don't ever want to lose that, that we go, oh, people are going to think I'm fill in the blank. You know what? Ignore that voice. Ask yourself, what is God going to think with blank? Um, Verse 14, and Saul's uncle went to him and said to his servant, went to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Fascinating. You know, you go on that, you have that mountaintop experience. You go to camp and you have that camp high, which is so awesome, a gift from God. Nothing wrong or unreal about that. That's no less real than the depression at another time during the year is not real. They're all, that's all part of who we are with him. But it's wild. You, get, you come back from something like that, you have this great high, and you come home to family. <laughs> and they're going to undermine your experience, and they're going to doubt it, and they're going to question it. I even wondered in this situation if you could imagine Saul up on that hilltop singing and praising God, full of joy and freedom, and catching out of the sort of corner of his eyes, his uncle standing there looking disapproving. And is that when Saul's kind of his... His hands go back in his pockets because that's what his uncle's doing. I don't know that. In fact, it may be exactly the opposite. It may be that the uncle is desperate to hear a word from the Lord. Maybe his uncle's ears are itching like everybody else's are, and he knows God's doing a great thing, and that's why he says it in verse 15. Please, please tell me what Samuel told you. Maybe he's desperate to hear some good news from God. We don't know the uncle. We don't have any way of knowing. But regardless, for whatever reason, Saul decides not to. And remember, Samuel didn't tell him. Hey, don't tell anybody about this. Nothing of the kind. This was a great moment for Saul to tell his uncle. Kish's probably brother. Hey, look, this is what God did through Samuel with me. It immediately, when I read this and knew I was going to talk about it, it immediately made me think of an old Stephen Curtis Chapman song. Stephen Curtis Chapman used to be a, uh, actually still is, a Christian musician that some of you have never heard of um, because I'm old. And so he, uh, he did some great, some great music. He's a great poet, had some great uh, stuff. And, uh, and he sang a song, and the lyrics immediately came to my mind when I read through this passage again. Um, it's called Live Out Loud is the name of the song. And so I'll have to interrupt it real quick right here at the beginning to explain something else. The song goes like this. Imagine this. I get a phone call from Regis. Okay, let me stop. Um, so Regis Philbin ran a game show called Do You Want to Be a Millionaire? And you went on the show and you answered questions and you could get help three different ways. And a handful of people won it over time. It was a very well done show and we all loved it and it was a big deal. Okay, now pick back up. You get a phone call. I get a phone call. It's from Regis. He says, do you want to be a millionaire? And he puts me on the show and I win with two lifelines to spare. Now picture this. I act like nothing ever happened. And I bury all the money in a coffee can. Well, I've been given more than Regis ever gave away. I was a dead man who was called to come out from my grave, and I think it's time to make some noise. This is the gospel. Saul has an opportunity to hear to say, this is what God is doing. This is, look at this amazing thing God is doing, and we are in a better situation than Saul was. We're better anointed than he was, and we're better called, and we're his representatives. We are kings and queens in his kingdom if we know his son. And it's high 
time that we invite people into that understanding. That we should be on the tip of our tongue when people ask us, why is that oil running down your face? Okay, maybe not that one. When people say, why is that smile on your face? How's your day going? What, it, it, anytime we get the opportunity to say, it should be right there on my tongue and on yours to say, oh, let me tell you this amazing thing that God is doing. Let me tell you what God has done for me. That we invite people into that understanding is absolutely necessary. And this, I think, is the important application, one of them here, that when we recognize who we are and who Christ has made us, that we have the opportunity to do this, and it's time for us to be a little louder about it. If you will, stand, please. And I want to pray over us in this. <clears throat> and that we would be able to, to celebrate what God has done and is doing, and we would do that in a way that people could see it and hear it. Father, um, you, as we said before, you're a God who loves to give good gifts. And this is a huge, this, this is, this is the, the, the top of all good gifts. This is the king of all good gifts, is that you loved us enough to send your son and your spirit to anoint us, to anoint us in his blood, to anoint us in his power that we could live out a different kind of life, a life that grows and changes, a life that allows for, for forgiveness and apology and repentance, a life that allows us to be transformed to being new men and women, that our souls are changed, our hearts are changed. And God, to do that in such a way that people will see that anointing dripping off of us we can tell them about this cool, amazing thing that you're doing. We can hear it. Sometimes, Lord, we don't speak it. I pray you would, as you have sealed us, called us, chosen us, made us your sons and daughters, your ambassadors, your servants, um, your soldiers, your workers, and your warriors. Lord, I pray that we would learn to live this out in every little thing that we say and do. And when we get the opportunity because we have been changed, because we have grown, and people look to us and say, how is that possible? How could that possibly happen? Is Saul even among the prophets? That we would be able to tell them about these amazing things that you're doing and that you've done. Lord, I pray that you would help that to be right there. The tip of our tongue, the first words that come out of our mouth are about you. And I pray this for myself and all of my brothers and sisters here. Thank you, Father, for the goodness of this in your son's name. Amen. So this is a time of invitation. It's a time when we, when we listen for what the Spirit has for us. We sing and praise a God who is worthy of that, um, and we ask Him to speak into our lives, to be changed by Him. Um, so maybe already God is laying something on you, and you need to come up here and kneel at, somewhere up here and pray, which would be great, and someone will happily pray with you if you want. Or you can head over to the corner, and there are people there who would love to pray with you as well about anything. Or maybe where you are, that needs to happen. Or maybe you need to go find someone in the room and make something right with somebody. Or maybe you've been through our welcome home process, and you're saying, I'm ready to come, and uh, I, I want to come, and I want to uh, join this dysfunctional family um, and, and learn to live out church with you guys. Whatever it is, I pray you would listen to the Spirit and follow what he has.